You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. On the off chance that perhaps, someday, we might profit from it. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Rowena Miller, and this is episode 65, Money Makes the World's Building Go Round. So here we are, friends, back again. It's, it's been a while since it's been just the three of us on here. And with the past few speed up guests, we've we've talked about our guests. We haven't talked. We haven't talked about ourselves in a little while. I think it's been a, it's been a minute. Do, do, do we have any announcements going on? Do we have do, do we have something like big like happening? Something happening. Like there's something happening. I'm going to have to check my calendar. Oh, right. <laughs> At the time this episode airs, it will be shortly before we are all together at Worldcon. It's incredibly exciting. It is. Well, we are not it is. officially appearing all together at Worldcon, except at the actual Hugo ceremonies. We'll probably be in the same vicinity, but we don't we don't have all three of us a panel together, but Certainly, if you're looking for any or all of us, we'll be around to be found. Yeah. Yes, and I think we are all on the program in various places. I'm very excited that I think Cass and I are appearing are. together on a clothing and fashion and textiles sort of panel. So I'm excited for that. It's the two of you and friends of the podcast, yes, and friends Marie of the Brennan podcast. and Alice Helms. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> if I were not counter-programmed, I would be in the audience for that <laughs> panel. Oh, <laughs> Bummer. Because that's going to be a fun one. I am counter-programmed. So. Alas. Alas. But that's okay. It's going to be great. And we hope any and all of you who are listening to this, who are also able to come to Worldcon and willing to be in places where you're seeing people, we hope that you come up and say hello to us and see us as people because we'd, we would, we'd love to hear from you. We don't have, like, challenge coins or anything, but maybe someday we will. <laughs> we should. But for now. We should. For now, just come up to us and and talk about no. Don't come up to us and talk about crabs. That would be weird. That would that out would, of context. That yeah. could be very strange. <laughs> that would set off some 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 warning bells for people around us. Probably, it'd probably be strange <laughs> for them. We should have some kind of passphrase. I don't know. We'll work on that. Go to the Discord and we'll find out a passphrase. <laughs> also, anything involving masochism or building till it hurts, probably not necessarily the best well, of. Eavesdroppers just, are going to get a real We're just image. trouble all around. <laughs> I, it might help with that whole social distancing thing, though, if we possibly drop plenty of masochism I, and crabs into the conversation. Like a, a little, little bubble just forms around us. I had to self-censor a video I did talking about us on TikTok because I was worried the word masochist was going to get called by their their no-no filters like they get they, they have all kinds of like sex related terms will get you downgraded and, and shadow ban you and i was like oh i don't want that i have to <laughs> I have to asterisk out some things i think it's okay if you say it as long as you don't put it in text but what was the thing in the captions i had oh, to I asterisk know. it out <laughs> the joys of tiktok the joy because you know yeah. they are i'm on tiktok now <laughs> Cass, there's an announcement. Cass is on TikTok now. I'm very cool and very young. <laughs> Neither of those things are true. She's lying. I am on she TikTok. Is, in fact, that is true. Very cool on TikTok. I've been Aww. enjoying. I've been enjoying her content very, very much, and she gives you the same kind of brilliant world building advice she gives you here, as well as you get to see her playing the character in her work in progress. Which, friends, it brings me such joy. Hopefully it'll do the same for you. Also lots of sing-alongs, like lots and lots of 90s sing-alongs if you're into that. That's really my big news. That's all I've got going for me right now. <laughs> I actually had a book come out a few weeks ago. We never... <laughs> you did? And that was... By the time this comes out, it'll have been like a month or so ago. By the time this like, comes out, it'll have been out for a month, but it is an unintended voyage, and it's my working class epic fantasy about a member of the Meriting Constabulary who gets kidnapped and shoved on a boat and ends up on the other side of the world and has to 
has to figure out a way to make enough money to pay off her debt so that she can get home and and hijinks ensue i still have to work on i have not pitched refine that things pitch. to people <laughs> <laughs> in so Here, long i'll go I, it's so fucking good, y'all. It's intricate and complex, and the characters are amazing. And I, once again, stayed up far too late reading it and then had to text him being like, you asshole, I have to teach in the morning. How, how could you write a book so good? That's completely unfair. Rude. Frankly rude to write books so good. And that made my day. So, it was just, you know, denying cast sleep made my day. <laughs> Gets lots of angry texts from me that, <laughs> that are along those lines. So please go out and buy it so that, because I have a mortgage. Speaking of, speaking of speaking mortgages, of, we're talking about money and financial systems in world building this time around. Fake ones, not our own. Yes. Yes. Places where we control the money, because I clearly have no control over it in my own life. Because <laughs> we're writers, and that's how that <laughs> that's how that works. I so I feel like this is something that like has underpinned lots of our conversations. Like we're always talking about how other things affect economy and money and and we always sort of factor that into our our other facets of facets of world building conversations but we haven't really talked about just money and economy itself as a standalone yes and i think one of the first questions to even ask is what is the stuff that your society or culture even values do they value stuff at all so, like, the first choose versus presume that you can even get to is our economy is very much based upon the idea of there are things and stuff that have value, and we value them, and we eventually develop currency and things. But does your culture even do that? Do they have value for stuff? Do they have things of value? Do they do things that, that are of particular value, create things of value? How does that, how does that work? One of the reasons why, say, things like gold and silver and jewels and gemstones became things of value, besides the fact that they're just shiny and pretty. And that's enough for me. Shiny! Shiny, <laughs> like, that's a, big, that's a big plus. But there are also things that can last an absurd amount of time. Like, if you like have a ton of iron coins and a ton of silver coins and a ton of gold coins and leave them in a room for 50 years, the iron coins are going to be a pile of rust. The silver coins will be, you know, a little tarnished, but you can polish them up and be fine. The gold coins will look exactly the same. So in terms of like, I'm going to accrue a bunch of stuff and, and it'll maintain the exact same value it had. That makes sense in terms of why these particular things and not other things. I think also the question of, of rarity, obviously, like comes into play. Is this something that can attain value because there's not that much of it? Or can it attain value because there's some pragmatic element to it that you need it and it's not super common? So things like salt and different fabrics and other things have been used as currency in various places at various times because they are not they aren't growing on trees or if they are you have to do stuff to them between the growing they are, on the trees, trees are far away <laughs> and it's complicated and anyway they have value and there's a pragmatic element to it too so it's like there's that question of like you know a hunk of gold is not very practical by itself. Plenty of element, like ways that we have paid for things or had currency are things that are actually are practical and you could use them if you wanted to. Well, the fact that like metals especially is what we end up making coins out of because that's something that you can force into the size and shape and weight that you need it to be to mean a certain amount of value. Like even when you think about like gemstones, that's harder to do to, to be able to cut it and facet it or whatever shave it down to the right size that gets to be a more complicated process as opposed to just like eh, throw it all in a pot melt it and then we'll ration it out the way we need to it's just really sort of fascinating how that whole process came together in our world but of course in your world there might be different considerations to come into play do you have metals that operate like that do you have something else that can serve the same the same functions right and certainly part of what i was thinking about there was just the fact that the, the reason why gold is a common choice is there's actually 
good choice reasons behind it. It's not just a presumption of like, oh, gold, because everybody does gold. Well, there there actually is a good reason behind that. You want your money, especially like coin type money, to also be just practical. I think I, I as soon as you were saying that about like melted down, it's easy to have in your hand. I was thinking of the Douglas Adams bit of one of the alien cultures that their coins were giant triangular pieces of rubber that were that were a mile wide so nobody collected enough <laughs> to actually to actually be of any value and thus the economy collapsed because the coin was just completely impractical to actually own or use so you want it to be if it isn't just a bartering or community like we all just grow to things together and make things together and people take what they need sort of system if it is a more complex system that requires coins or some other sort of valued currency then it needs to be one where people can use it relatively easy and do a minimal amount of math <laughs> oh yes let's <laughs> avoid math i think that that's a good point that you make too marshall like what is the point of currency in the culture does does your culture have a need for currency or not because if you have a culture that you've built around the idea of purely communal living that every all property is communal all labor is divided everyone's you know truly doing the whole you pitch in what you can and you get what you need you don't really have a need necessarily for currency within that culture that would be weird if all of a sudden you had money on top of it because why what are you what are you doing with it and i think that you can stretch the idea of a barter culture too pretty far i mean I think we write it off as being like simplistic or primitive, but you could have really complex rules built up in a society around how do you barter? What rules are there for that? Is there like some kind of official ledger system of filing your bartering or, or whatever? That makes me think of the, the episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, where <laughs> Nog does this entire complex system of barters and trades. Which the self-sealing of- stem bolts. <laughs> self-sealing but he speaks of it in this beautiful like almost religious sense of like it's like okay i'm gonna you know i've traded this for this other thing what is another thing i don't know do i need it i don't know but i have faith that i will find the person needs that and they're gonna have something that and that sooner or later like the the great river of trade will will wash back to me and i will get what i need out of this sequence of trades and i will do i will profit from it eventually wasn't there some some guy, and this was like in the early years of the internet, and I forget what platform he did it on, but he somehow managed to trade from like a paperclip to like a car or a house or something ridiculous oh, just by like yes. trading things. And eventually he like traded from, I think it was a paperclip all the way up to. Yes, I do. Re- I do remember that. <laughs> I don't remember the detail, but I do remember it's like I started with this and then I traded it for something else. And then I traded that for something else and, and just worked his way up to getting like a house or a car or something right. completely absurd. Which just speaks and... to the idea, too, of like the valuation of things is not just, you know, when you have a standard currency, we have a standard value. But when you're in a trading and barter system, it's about what other people value that thing for so like i'm going to trade you a paperclip for a gumball well like maybe you value the paperclip more highly because you have things you want to clip together and i value the gumball more highly because i do love a gumball and so the trade makes sense and we each are getting what we feel is the better value out of this this trade this was me every halloween as a kid because i (laughs) freaking love tootsie rolls most children do not. But you can get like three or four Tootsie Rolls for a mini Three Musketeers bar. And so I ended up one year with like 400 Tootsie Rolls because I was willing to trade other things that other people held in higher value for a greater number of Tootsie Rolls that they didn't even want. I was going to say, I would have totally pawned off my Tootsie Rolls on other people. <laughs> I love Tootsie Rolls. Absolutely, yes. And I just, I just watched this. I watched this occur in real time with my kids and, and my friends' kids because it was like between the different kids, like there were like six of them. Their allergies... And the one kid has orthodontia, so nothing chewy. And like, I don't like this. And it was like this whole like complicated system of like, I can't have this, but it has value for you. And so I'm going to hold out for something higher, even though I can't use it myself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was whole little barter economy springing (laughs) up there. 
they had more fun with that than they did with the actual trick-or-treating situation. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just the idea of what do you value, what can you use, plays into the question of, of value. And what are the, the needs and the competing pressures of the moment, too? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Neopets, if anyone out there <laughs> played Neopets. And how, I was aware like, of them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, there were certain items that at certain times had really high value. Like, you really wanted the, the Halloween paintbrush in October to paint your pets for Halloween. But the Halloween paintbrush meant nothing in February. So, like, its relative value changed over time as well. I miss Neopets. <laughs> That also presents some of the intrinsic problems with the barter system, where if you have like one person's like, well, I need you to put shoes on my horse and I can give you this goat milk for that. And he goes like, I don't want or need goat milk, nor (laughs) do I want to go through the trouble of then trying to, you know, trying to sell the goat milk or get value out of the goat milk. That's not my problem. Not everyone is Nog. Not everyone wants to play that game. Not everyone wants right. to play that game or make that their problem. They're just like, so no, give me something I want. So that's, I mean, that's certainly a key reason why barter economies tend to transition to to currency economies just out of the, the property of like, we need something we all agree has value, whether or not, you know, we've decided we all need it (laughs) even if we don't all need it but then at least we can decide it has meaningful value in and of itself and therefore and therefore we can trade for anything i mean you see this even in fairy tales like jack and the beanstalk where you know he takes his cow and gets five beans and like if they weren't magic beans then son you got highway robbed like five beans ain't gonna get you anything i mean that's usually part of the story is mom being like yeah what the fuck? What What the hell did you do? <laughs> Why are you such a stupid boy, Jack? Why? It's like, wait, is it from um, Into the Woods? The slotted spoon can't hold much soup. <laughs> but the slotted spoon can hold a potato. <laughs> but yes, as many problems as money creates, currency does solve a lot of problems, too. And the idea of having like a standardized system for trading one's services and one's goods currency solves that problem (laughs) i don't want money i want a peanut money you can buy more peanuts (laughs) i was thinking about how like if you're writing a story and you you don't have currency in some ways it complicates things if there's any kind of commerce going on and then it's sort of there's a tendency to make the story about that like the nog episode but it'd be sort of funny if a writer didn't do that but throughout an entire book, there's just anytime they trade something, it's completely nonsense values and it's never explained. It's just like, for this one, five lentils. For, for something else, I'm going to give you half a goat. Like just completely <laughs> bewildering things. Like whether that's like literally half a goat or like you now own a share of this goat. I, I don't even know. But like it'd be really sort of funny to, to have that barter system, but never explain the relative value. <laughs> it's just like the characters know. So... Just like with money, I'm not going to explain it. I'm kind of inspired by that because I would love to see sort of where that like happens the whole time. But then the climax is every single one of those trades pays off in some sort of like perfect moment. Thank God. If I had only that I had half a goat. <laughs> <laughs> That's the meat cute is two people who each have half a goat. And they, oh. The, the two people end love. up with the ownership of the goat. Yeah. Means it's like, oh, yeah. we own the goat together. Aww. This means we're married. <laughs> playing out wow okay <laughs> barter fanfic happening over here but see that would be an int- like does your economic system does that imply certain degrees of what ownership means does ownership then imply what like partnerships or even marriage mean like you can you can you can you can spin all sorts of wildness out of this just from like what what the money is and therefore the choices that need to be made. I think it'd be interesting to like playing with the logistics of, I mean, money makes so many things easy in terms of like transporting your currency. It's just in your pocket or your purse or your wallet or whatever. Like if, if, if you're trading in goats, it gets more complicated because I can speak from experience. They take up space. So <laughs> although like in a world with magic, we think about this bags of holding or like, could you shrink the goat? And then bring the goat back out. Like, do you send do you send the goat into some kind of like 
temporary purse void, and then you bring it out when you need to, and the goat the looks bank a little, dimension looks a little startled and is kind of like, whoa, but you know it's fine. It's it's the bank dimension rather than like an actual banking system. You use magic to put things in separate little pocket you, universe and you <laughs> literally bank them. Bank in. them. Everything I own is in this bag. <laughs> wow. Even my house. It's just hold on. I think it's interesting too in that like if you have a gold coin or you have a dollar bill or whatever it is, everyone agrees on what that value is, right? But even if you have two goats, like they're not identical goats. They can be yeah, you can have a your, good goat or a bad your, goat. Your or... goat seems a little a little mangy or have you can you prove that, that this goat produces milk? Like have you I mean just getting into the whole livestock thing, there's a whole thing with that, right? Is that a proven milker? Is that a proven breeder or not? Like the value goes up, how well has it been cared for? You know, all kinds of objective ways of measuring things like a goat and also subjective. I like the white goat better than the brown goat. Or I like the goat with little ears better than the goat with big ears. And it's it's just it's goat chaos. Where I suppose a pound sterling of silver is a pound. Like that's <laughs> that's gonna be the same no matter what. And no matter who which king or queen's stamp is on that pound of silver at the end, of, at the end of the day, it's still the same pound of silver, and thus you can go to the next country and be like, "Here's silver," and they're like, "That's great." I recognize this is this is so many ounces of silver, but of course, like as soon as you introduce currency, you start introducing people who want to cheat the system, and that's when you oh, start yeah. getting clipped coins and shaved coins, and and is the actual coin worth what its value is, or is it mm-hmm. worth what it actually weighs? That's where it becomes complicated. Well, and we do that on purpose, right? I mean, we have the concept of this. This piece of paper is standing in for originally this much actual chunk O change that exists theoretically, and we're representing it with this piece of paper. Like it's, you know, we have the idea of a pound note is, is representing a pound somewhere. And now we just have the, the number on the screen representing the paper, which represents the value. <laughs> Like, right. So so that's that's a good question. Of It is a sort of, we all agree this is money, but... We're all playing the kinda, game. <laughs> we're all playing the game where we all agree this is money. But that that transition, like that can be that can be a fun thing to play with within your story is what happens when there is that transition from silver is silver and we're all, we're all, we all agree silver is silver. But there, some of us have these notes that say, if you give me this note, I will give you a pound of silver at a later date or something like that. And do we all agree what that the note means anything or does it mean nothing or how, how many of my notes equals how many of your notes? And like, then don't even get into like, you know, different forms of currency and the different values of, of those numbers. And, and what I'm thinking about like Regency gamblers and their IOUs, which like were taken as absolute oaths that you would pay that money. And, and really it's like, it's just an agreement. It's just, <laughs> it's just that the rules keeping that in place were very much social. It is very much. I will. This means I will give you money at some future date if I have any, which I probably don't. Which is why I'm giving you an IOU in the first place. <laughs> I have to sell a daughter before I can pay you back. <laughs> but since I have a title, you believe I have money. Would you? Would you take goats? <laughs> How many goats? But I think it's, you know, the idea, too, of, of if you have currency, especially paper currency or something like that, standing in for value, like that can be a fun thing to play within a story um, that's part of larger social upheaval or political climate being really funky or wars or whatever. You know, you think about American Revolution, they've got, they're printing continental dollars and plenty of people are like, I'm not taking that. That's not real money. <laughs> That's a piece of paper that means absolutely nothing. Like you're not you're not paying me with that. That's that's crap. This you is know? only this only has value if you win. Yeah, I don't <laughs> so. I'm not buying it. Yeah, I'm not buying what you're selling. Or, you know, the really extreme post World War One collapse of the German economy that they had this hyperinflation and like the money was worth zilcho and and apparently I, I don't know if this is true, but I have heard that people in the US would get these and would like wallpaper their houses with currency because it was worth like it was kind of like a thumb your nose like at how ridiculously worthless this money is i had in college an an old german professor who told stories of how in that time you would literally 
like fill a wheelbarrow with money. Mm -hmm. And by the time you then got to where you were going to buy a thing, they were like, no, sorry. It's that much money. That was worth something yesterday, but (laughs) come back with a goat. Not today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I take a goat, but not this crap. (laughs) But like, that's the point where the, the sort of key advantage currency has of being more easy to transport and, and to, and to transition has ceased to be an advantage. It has ceased to have that function and everything's out of control. There's also then the factor, especially in terms of storytelling, of what do numbers for your currency even mean? Like, if you throw around your stories like, well, that's going to be 100 crowns or 1,000 florins or whatever, how will your readers necessarily interpret what that really means in terms of the larger economy? I... If you haven't watched Squid Game yet, I've only seen the first two episodes, but without spoiling everything, it's set in South Korea and money is very much an issue. But the Korean won is such a radically different value of currency. So like the the amounts they're throwing around are like in the millions and billions. At one point, the guy, the the main character says something like, can you lend me 10,000 just so I can get, but that's the equivalent of can you lend me $10? But it feels weird because like 10,000 seems like that seems like a lot, but it's all, it's all relative in terms of what the culture is. And, and I think like that can be a real interesting roadblock in terms of expressing what your money means in a way that necessarily makes sense to your reader. It's like I was in Italy the year that they transitioned from, or like a year or two after they transitioned from the lira to the Euro and so a lot of the menus and things still had prices in both because they were still accepting lira because they could get them changed into euro. And it'd be like, this meal is four and a half euros or 7,000 lira. <laughs> 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 same same thing. Vastly different scales. I'm in Mexico right now. And what always throws me, even though I know that it's a different value for the peso than for the dollar, they still use the same symbol the dollar sign symbol is still the symbol for the peso. So like you will see something and it'd be, and it'll say like 1000. You're like, what? I'm like, oh wait, no, that's 50 bucks. Um, <laughs> but you have to like have that moment of like, oh, right. That's because <laughs> it says $1,000 with a dollar sign. And that, that'll throw you, especially if you're writing between two different cultures, what not only what money means, but what money means differently to each of them and how, is there an exchange rate and what that what that exchange rate means necessarily between the two cultures? Can they even exchange? Or do they have to go back to silver or goats to, to have an agreed upon? <laughs> yes. Do you have exchange rates in your fantasy world? Has someone somewhere sat down and worked this out and we've all agreed to play by the rules? Because honestly, you know, when you have the idea of coming into trade with other cultures, that's where a real point of tension on value comes in, right? I mean, you might have your, you know, barter system nailed down within your little community or your, you know, we just own everything communally works fine for you. But when the guys across the river want to trade with you, like that doesn't necessarily work anymore. So you come into contact with other cultures and the idea of having some kind of system of valuing things in common can be an interesting point of tension. And then can it go even further than that? Not just like commodities, but can it be, can you have like a stock market or a futures market or or like, are you, are you building in that level of complexity into your stories? I think it was the, the Dutch East India company in like the 1500s was when they first started, like basically like trading in the stock market. Creating the stock market. You're going to need the money to go do the venture. And so I'll put the money into the venture and I expect to get money back on this at some point. So, and yeah, having some form of currency that allows for that kind of record keeping becomes kind of essential. Right. And who's keeping those records and how is, what is the, the system of making sure that everyone is doing it fairly or on the ball or like, oh, you know, you... You thought you owned 10%. I sold 10% to 50 people. (laughs) (laughs) Version of of the meme. It's like, look at what you did. You had a perfectly good society, and then you fucked it up. You gave it accountants. (laughs) 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 But, like, a certain degree of complexity in your economy does require its own sort of separate bureaucracy and separate 
skill set and people who intentionally develop that skill set. It's sort of a lot of the the plot behind um, the Baru Cormont series is the protagonist is an accountant and <laughs> is, who uses is, her accountancy yeah. powers to bring down the empire. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Like just yeah, just I will never do things like that because I do not understand the stock market. As far as I'm concerned, you are buying and selling abstract nouns like confidence. And that just seems like some fey bullshit to me. (laughs) I do not understand how it works. Right? I'm pretty sure the stock market is just fey bullshit. No one has ever been able to convince me that it isn't. going to find out that it's like, you can't take iron and salt onto the trading room floor because they're all just fairies. That's probably. Probably. I would not be surprised. I would genuinely not be surprised. So how does it, adding fairies into your economic system? <laughs> I mean, it does get to that thing of like, once again, what has value? And I sort of, I love that in lots of fae stories where it is like, I'm taking a memory or I'm taking your name or I'm taking a kiss that has intrinsic value of some kind. It's, it's sort of an easy way to tell a reader like their value system is entirely different than what you are used to. Can the mystical or the magical or the spiritual have some sort of value that then can be traded or imposed upon, you know, is it the show Preacher where at one point he sells 11% of his soul to be able to do something? And like, like, can it be broken? Can the mystical be broken down when combined with the mathematical or something? As long as someone has a controlling share of your soul, you're fine. (laughs) That was the mistake that Faustus made. Yep. (laughs) He started bargaining years and terms. He wasn't thinking about controlling share. Exactly. You have to think about these things. But yeah, when we think about like the competing systems, like if you're dealing with two cultures that have entirely different value systems, not just different currencies, but what they value is intrinsically different. It gets complex. And it's something that has always bothered me about Star Trek is that they have their economy that does not have currency because everyone's needs are fulfilled they've got the replicators everyone has what they need how the fuck do they trade latinum with the ferengi and then why would it even matter like are they just replicating latinum no i think it's established somewhere that you can't replicate latinum but like then where does their latinum come from to trade with the ferengi and that's why we need self-sealing stem bolts i guess but (laughs) but that is like the reason of why latinum supposedly has value is it's a thing that can't be replicated so therefore it's it still has rarity but yeah, like, what are, what are the Federation, like, is it just like, hey, we don't use money, but you're going to be dealing with this Ferengi guy, so here's some coins. That just, we found somewhere? Like, I, just, <laughs> I, I have questions. Like, do they, do they have, is the whole, we don't use money, like, is that just amongst ourselves? But we kind of, kind of have a credit system that, that like, we then use when we're dealing with the people who do have money. And how does that necessarily work? But also, like, in a system like the Federation, clearly you can get an apartment in San Francisco with no problem. But what if you want a nicer apartment with a better view? Who decides that whether or not you get that? Is that a meritocracy? And who decides the merit? These are things that plague my head all the time. <laughs> have you have you read Treconomics? Because <laughs> well, I think that it's, you know, the whole, the whole idea of a money-free society, it, it sounds really nice. But you have to really pick apart the like, so what are you doing instead? Because that instead could actually be a lot ickier if you're not careful about it. Star Trek hasn't poked at it, but I sort of wish they would. And it wouldn't surprise me if if maybe some of the newer series start to. The concept I've seen put forward by Manu Sadia, who wrote Treconomics, is that it's a prestige economy. That it's not your income that sort of defines your worth as it is in our society, Uh, where you have to prove that you make, you know, three times the rent in order to get an apartment, but that it is about your reputation. And a better reputation might enable you to get that better apartment. The things you have done, the achievements that you have, in some ways that sounds great. And in some ways, yeah, it's like, okay, but by what standard? Who judges that? What, who decides? Who decides what is more prestigious than something else? If you watch Lower Decks, you then have to ask yourself, who is saying it is worth the potential value of one day being a captain for me to right now be an ensign, sleeping on a bunk, scrubbing out unpleasant things, being in a situation where I'm getting shot at. That's going to pay off down the line. 
if I do if I do this hard work, like that's that's some serious rise and grind bullshit. If you really <laughs> think about it, but it's like it's it's so clearly like it's framed as yeah. We even use the the term pay off. Yeah, I think we're meant to believe that they wouldn't think of it in that term. Essentially, it'd be about the experience of getting to be captain, not what being captain gets you. And they always do say that, like, it's the captain's chair everybody wants, not even the admiral's. But that's clearly because if you're an admiral, you either go crazy or get killed or whatever. It never ends well for them. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> Space <laughs> talk, yeah, talk about red shirts, but the admirals, they... Eh, but yeah, this worse. idea of, like, what what is the value? What what drives you, if not the drive for money? And that's probably a hard question for most Americans to answer. Yeah. Because well, and I think, you know, just the, the whole the whole play with employment in general. Our our concept of employment and of what you go to work for is very much tied to money. And money certainly makes the concept of employment, as we understand it, an easier trade to have, right? I mean, you you understand what you were going into work for, you receive your paycheck, kind of a concept. But you could certainly have other systems in which employment or work is traded for other things or in other ways. To, you, to go back to Star Trek, you have Joseph Sisko running a Cajun restaurant, just like, which is a lot of work. And like, he's a big like, no, I don't use replicators. I do it all for real. And I'm shucking the oysters out. Like, that's a lot of work. And supposedly he's just doing it for the pure love and joy of doing it. And like, that's great. but like. Also, don't you want to retire, man? <laughs> <laughs> true. But I do want to point out, we write books. That's true. <laughs> Typically before we get paid for them. And many people would think that, hmm, between shucking oysters and having to write something, I'd take the oysters. <laughs> Once again, it's so... about comparative value. What are you willing to do versus what am I willing to do? I mean, certainly, you know, so much of our whole business is based on not necessarily volunteer labor, but real close to it. <laughs> well, and like society works as long as all of the needs that we have are fulfilled by the people who, are, for some insane reason, want to do that thing, right? But when you have to have some additional motivating factor in order to get people to do the thing then the whole concept of money kind of comes into play. Like, I swear, growing up, our garbage man loved his job. He was a self-employed garbage collector, and he legitimately loved what he did. And I was like, you are a rare breed, sir. I don't know if there is another man in the world who loves collecting garbage as much as you do. I have a feeling that the guys who pick up our garbage now and tend to like like leave the can just kind of like in the street and miss us every third week, you know, I think they're doing it for the money. I just get the sense that they're doing it for the paycheck, not the love of garbage. Well, and like if you've ever been in a major city when the sanitation workers were on strike, you start to understand the value of their work real yeah. fast. <laughs> I was in Rome during one of those strikes once and it was like, hmm, this escalated quickly. Yes. But they tend to solve that problem by offering them more money pretty quickly. Because <laughs> they know the value that that work has. I mean, my goodness, of all, all the things that you can let go in a society, I'm pretty sure sanitation is like pretty low on the priority list of, of things we can let go. Like, nope, you, you need to need that one's important. I mean, so much of that just stems from like whoever is like in charge of a city or charge, like will go, hmm. There's a lot of garbage building up here. I don't want to take it somewhere myself, but I would really love for somebody to do that. What if I paid them? <laughs> and they'll take it away. And then you're like, who can I pay? So many choices in life are basically, here's a thing that I need done. And I don't be want to be the one to do it. Can't, can't I pay somebody else to do that? And you know, <laughs> I'm just like the stratification of society. The more complex it gets and the more stuff you have happening in a world and the more specialized people's work gets it's like you hit a point where i can't do all of the things that maintaining life in general requires people are going to have to take on specialized roles so all these things then become a lot more or can become a lot more complicated when you add magic into the mix because what does what does magic do in terms of 
A, that's a that's a labor that you can certainly trade for 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 money if that if your world system allows for that. But also like what does money what does magic do to money? Like if you can just be like, "Oh, here's 5 gold coins. Snap. Now it's 500 gold coins." Like is that like what does that do to your economic system? Yeah, can you- magic create <laughs> hyperinflation and crash the stock market. You know, do you create something similar to the replicator situation where you don't need physical rare items any longer because you can just replicate them. You can just create them from magic. And that's going to totally screw with the concept of cold hard cash because what is it good for when you can create what you need? Or perhaps it becomes more of a system of something that magic needs becomes the currency. There's some sort of energy or life force or whatever becomes currency because that's how magic runs. One, one of the side projects I'm working on right now, the world building, I wanted, I wanted the use of magic to be a working class thing. So I had this, uh, just the energy itself is a thing everybody wants, but nobody wants to use your own life force energy to power things. So thus... You you pay so you buy it from somebody else, and the only people who are going to sell it are the people who are, you know, the most at risk of needing to like you know I will do anything for money. Fine, here's a little here's a little magic energy, you know, and instead and of selling that, a kidney, you sell your your yeah. magical <laughs> essence. So this is like dark like plasma donation, but with magic. Precisely, and, <laughs> but it's also reached the point where magic is like literally fueling things like street lamps and trains, so the demand is going up and up. So I I want to do it as sort of a parallel to like how like things with coal mines in in England went, and we need coal, but coal mining is terrible. But we'll get you know the most vulnerable people to have to go and mine coal. <laughs> but we have all these the spare kids, job. so. So that's that's a solution. Got tons of life energy. Yeah, I played with a similar idea at one point that I've kind of shelved at the moment. But instead of it being a, a voluntary thing, it was the concept almost more of, of a tax. That if you live within these borders, you are taxed a certain element of magic contribution in order to make the things like the trains and the lights and the the other stuff run. Which is to a degree what Andrea Stewart did in yeah, her with the her, bone. yeah with bunch her daughter with you know, like you got to give a piece of your skull and hey. maybe it'll drain some hey maybe just giving a piece of your skull that'll kill you off the bat but but if it doesn't <laughs> <Sorry. then> <laughs> sometimes we do the surgery bad oops but if it doesn't then it might just drain your life force over the course of time don't worry about it. don't it's, worry about it's it. fine it's fine it's fine even the concept too of yeah like larger scale that money makes taxation a thing that is easier to enact upon a populace so one more fun thing you can do with money is how does money and like system of power go together in terms of what you owe whether it is magical or or cash or goats but it's easier if it's cash it's easier for the tax collector to be like, just give me a hundred dollars rather than um, give me a chicken and two loaves of bread and. Because <laughs> the bread's gonna get moldy by the time it gets back, and the chicken and might just chicken. panic and have a heart attack. So. But that like, chicken is ornery. But that was <laughs> legit candy. the way it used to yeah. be. I mean, you know, your quarter days in in you know Western European tradition, the the cross quarter days, Michaelmas and things like that, was the day you turned up to your local lord's house with your pig and your sack of grain that you owed him as taxes because you didn't have currency so you paid them in that like and and they had a system for figuring out like how many pigs and goats each of you serfs owes us (laughs) (laughs) and and you know that they were out there like which of the crappy crap what's the crappiest pig that can pass off exactly as good which one's gonna die soon anyway (laughs) you know they're they're not that that one's that one's clearly on death's door we we can't we can't pull that off but that one over there he's uh it's not the best, but I think that we can pass them off. That does make me think, like, if magic could do a thing like, say, just, like, make more gold coins, if that then makes things go back to a barter or service trade economy, because nobody can trust coins, but, like, you can't use magic to to replicate, like, living things, so therefore mice become currency just because you can't make more mice with, with magic. And also, and why would you want to? The idea of people carrying around, like, little cages, like purses, with mice in them, and you're, like, going shopping, and you have your little, like, 
really pretty, like deftly, you know, wrought iron and, and decorations cage with, with your mice. Oh, it's funny to think how many magical systems actually place that inhibition upon coinage. Like you think there there are lots of examples of magical systems where you can't replicate coins. And it's like, for what reason? <laughs> why? It's like, why, why doesn't you it work? Basically because the writer or whoever was just like, I don't want the hornet's nest that that's going to open up. <laughs> and I respect so therefore, that. <laughs> therefore, I'm just going to shut it down. I mean, once again, it gets it gets into fey bullshit because you think about, you know, like the fairy gold that turns into leaves at dawn or whatever. Similar sort of, you know, concept there that has older roots than, than just writers trying to get out of things. It may have been writers trying to get out of things. That's true. It might have been bards <laughs> trying to get out of things. Yeah, trying to get out of things fairy tales told by grannies well why didn't the gold i don't know it turns to leaves in the morning go to sleep (laughs) or do you just have a system where the magic users just control all the money unless of course wizard money and human and regular people money just are different currencies that don't exchange and you know magic could be the thing that necessitates currency that that's the thing that has the most nebulous difficult to a certain value that you're like okay we need to agree what spells are worth we need to have some kind of agreement upon how we trade in this thing because otherwise the chaos of of magic just kind of being part of our world without any control on it becomes a problem for some reason the phrase billable hours just came up to <laughs> yeah. in my head I'm like... All right, the spell will take me 70 minutes, so that's, you know, I got to charge it for two full hours. It's just the rules. I mean, the whole idea of time being related to money in some way can be played with in a lot of really fun ways in fantasy. <laughs> I, I am now reminded of a, one of the more obscure films in the Tom Hanks canon called Volunteers, where he ends up in... He ends up sort of accidentally ending up in the Peace Corps and is somewhere in Southeast Asia. And then this opium lord kidnaps him. But there's this whole speech with the opium lord saying, it's like, you've cost me the, the opium trade. Opium is money. Then later he's like, you know, this is taking too much time and time is money. Later then he goes, and money is money. It's like, well, can we go back to what is time again? <laughs> <laughs> time, like, is o- time is opium. Clearly I was following time along. I got that. <laughs> Just the idea that your time is worth money, in theory. A lot of times you are not charging for necessarily the work you are doing, but the time it supposedly takes you. I mean, it is interesting that, especially I mean, in the U.S. right now, I, I, I don't know, like we're talking about hourly wages as though it's, it's maybe a thing that's, that's debated and um, an issue at, at the moment. I don't know, maybe a concept. But the idea that an hour is worth a certain amount of money or... That, that that it's a time equals sort of situation where a salary is understood to be this many hours per week and you're being paid for roughly this many hours worked for a company per week. It is interesting because I think, you know, you don't have to do the time equals money. You could do the concept of this service is worth this much money or you produce this product, it's worth this much money. And it may or may not be directly related to how much time it took you to make. Um, I mean, we we make things that take us... We won't think about our hourly trade-off, no. how much no. we're making. No, or the rest of this podcast would just be us weeping. Just crying quietly in the corner. We're writers. We don't understand money because if we did... We, wouldn't we do would do this. something else. <laughs> <laughs> we really, really would. But yes, the, the concept of the hourly wage being only one way in which you can measure and value um, labor or product. And measure prestige, too, because how many people mm-hmm. rank their prestige based on the idea of what they make per hour? I mean, and as you were saying, there's a lot of debate going on on what an hourly wage yep. should be. And many people have a problem with this only not because a change in the minimum wage would actually affect their life at all, but just the idea of then that diminishes the value of what they get paid in terms of just their own self-esteem, because now people who do what they deem to be less important work are getting paid more, which is a fascinating idea to me. Yeah, and then there's also the hierarchy of like, 
hourly wage workers are sort of socially considered inferior to salaried workers, which does not necessarily track in the value of their contributions to society at all. But it's that prestige thing. Mm-hmm. Or even in how much money you're actually making, because sometimes you're like, actually, I'll stay on hourly because now you're just using my labor for free. <laughs> or like my sister who makes bank in tips waiting tables. And she likes doing that. And yeah, when I think about how much more money she makes than I do, it's... <laughs> Those noises. That's what it is. Yeah. But she's providing a service to people like that's and they've placed that value upon her work, which is it's it's just sort of interesting how how much of ourselves in the current framework of society is tied up with that bottom line with that number, which hasn't always been the case. I mean, even since the rise of currency, that hasn't always been the only like the most important thing. And I think even now you still have some element of the idea of a prestige job that makes crap. But but there's still a prestige to it. Like lower tier academics don't make very much money. But if you're a full-time professor somewhere, gosh, that still has a ring to it, even though you're making, you know, less money than plenty of other less quote unquote prestigious positions. But I think it's, I mean, we've kind of thoroughly flogged some of the post-money systems that you can have, but you can in fantasy if you want have a post-money or non-money, non-currency system and play with that and then see what ripple effects it has into how people value work, value self, value plenty of, of parts of society that are in some way or another related to the way that we think about money. Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on December 22nd, where we'll be rejoined by Marie Brennan and Alice Helm to talk about taking a deep dive into giving your world a rich, interconnected history. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.